Welcome to the Aspen UK podcast, where we bring people together to discuss topics that matter. The Critical Climate Conversations podcast series is a partnership between Credit Suisse and the Aspen Institute UK. Hello and welcome to this first webinar in our series, Critical Conversations, the climate imperative post-COP. Much was discussed in the lead up to the COP26 meeting in Glasgow about whether the most critical social and environmental challenges were going to be met. And at Aspen UK, we thought it was equally important to address what really did happen, whether our world leaders will deliver ambitious pledges and cogent plans necessary to tackle the climate emergency. Hi, I'm Penny Richards. I'm the head of the Aspen Institute in the UK, and we really enjoy using the Aspen Institute's global convening power to invite some of the most thoughtful and experienced thinkers to discuss some of the most consequentials of topics of our time. And now to our extraordinary stellar panel. I was explaining to them earlier that that we had a list of people we really wanted to include on this panel and these are the people we're really glad they said yes. The first, Sandra Guzman-Luna, is the manager of the Climate Finance Programme at the Climate Policy Initiative. She focuses on the development of tools to mainstream climate change in the financial sector. Jojo Mehta is the co-founder of Stop Ecocide International, an organization that supports the establishment of ecocide as a crime at the International Criminal Court. David Abura is joining us from Kenya, where he is the founding director of the Coastal Oceans Research and Development Indian Ocean, a knowledge organization supporting sustainability of coral reef and marine systems in the Western Indian Ocean. Oliver Withers is the biodiversity lead with the Sustainability Strategy Advisory and Finance Group of Credit Suisse. And Anna Young. Anna Young is the Executive Director of the Sustainability Accelerator at Chatham House, working to understand how finance and innovation can enable the deep sustainability transition. Quite a stellar panel and with a stellar moderator. And now to Simon. Simon Mundy is the Moral money editor at the Financial Times, covering environmental and sustainability issues for the award-winning platform and across the wide FT. He has just, by the way, come back from two years traveling across six continents to research for his wonderfully recently published book, Race for Tomorrow, which looks at the global scramble to respond to climate change. Simon, thank you so much for leading us today and over to you. Thanks so much, Penny. Well, that's a wonderful introduction from Penny. So I think I can just go straight in with the questions, which is great. Um, I'd like to start with a question to Sandra on something that I've been thinking about a lot in this job, which, as Penny says, I've recently started looking at the movement of money and how that has impacts on the environment as well as on society uh, more broadly. But when it comes to accounting for these impacts, it's very difficult. And there is a debate going on at the moment over how far we can improve our accounting systems to take into account impacts on the natural world or impacts on society. Um, And how far that's actually, according to some people, almost a fool's errand. There are people who are saying, how can you really put a monetary value on a rainforest or on the health of a child and so on? These These are things that are beyond... Uh, the realm of standard accounting methodology and so on. So, Sandra, where where do you come down here? Because I think everyone agrees that we need to we need to find a way to really assess impacts on the natural world, impacts on biodiversity, and on the environment more broadly. But it's difficult. We're not currently doing it properly. Clearly, how far can we go? Where do you think we should be aiming here? Thank you so much, Simon, and thanks a lot for the invitation to this amazing conversation, which I I, I agree with you. It's very, very important and necessary to to have it. So can we put a price in nature? I I would say that there are several approaches to to respond to this question, but I I would stick to to two approaches. And and the very first one is the one that we know is the, the economic monetary approach that is related to the cost. A lot of questions are around uh, how much is costing the devastation of the environment. And there are mainly two, two, two questions that, that a lot of researchers are doing at this point. So it's 
how much is going to cost if we lose our, our rainforest? How much is going to cause the, the pollution in, in the air? How much is going to cause the loss of so many species around the world? But there is another approach that has been another question within this approach that is also how much we are going to benefit of, let's say, protecting uh, the, the forest, how much we're going to benefit if we keep investing in conservation of all so different species. And this cost approach that is very monetary approach is all related to, it's, it's a very anthropocentric approach uh, because we are thinking in what is the, what are the benefits for the humanity? We are thinking in how much is gonna cost us in our pocket to lose a, a, the, 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 a good, Air quality in the earth, but what I'm what I'm saying is that we are thinking in how much is going to cost us as humans. But I think there is another approach that we have to consider that is a more intrinsic approach, which is the actual value of nature. And I think this is very important because sometimes um, this is a, sometimes we forget that we are part of nature. And, and this is precisely one of the conversations that we have been having with a lot of indigenous communities, because when we talk about value, we don't talk about a value from the monetary approach. We talk about value, value about how I feel when I'm in a, in a space in nature, I, I, interacting with my own being, no? because we are part of, a, we are a species, we are an, another species living in this planet. So it's how can I value where, uh, what makes me feel human? What makes me feel, uh, you know, like part of this world? And I think this approach that is very intrinsic, um, what it is precisely what the communities, indigenous communities are trying to tell us that we can put, yes, a price in things. And, and this is part of the capitalist approach that we can put price in everything. But at the end of the day, it's not only about putting price and uh, how much it costs, because to be honest, if we think about, for instance, the ecosystem, the, 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 what we call the ecosystem services that the Amazon, for instance, provides to the world, it's not only the forest providing oxygen, it's about the rivers, it's about the capturing the water from all the cycle, it's, it's about the, the, the biodiversity, it's about that balance that is allowing us to survive. How can you put a price on that? And, and this is just, just to, to give an example. So for instance, when you talk about how much do you love your mom? How much can you value? How can, how can you put a price in the, in the love that you feel for your mom? Tell me, no? It's very difficult to, to put a price in something that cannot be cost, cost you cannot analyze this from a cost effective or perspective, but rather from the value that provides to you. Can we put these two approaches together? I think we never gonna be able to pay what really nature values because it's very difficult to say that one river costs three, three billions or like the, the jaguar in, 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 in the ecosystem cost two, another two billions. But I think we can come together and analyze how can we, first of all, put a price in the activities that are causing the problem. Because I think this is about uh, the value that we see in the ecosystems, but it's how we are going to start changing the investment and the financial perspective. Because the, one of the reasons why I have been working on climate finance is because I know that the financial sector, the investments that we have been doing for so many years are the, one, the ones that are causing all this devastation. Because polluting, uh, be, be, um, you know, the devastation of, of environment costs nothing. No, you can pollute a river, you can cut the, the, the forest, and that's nobody's gonna charge you for that. So that's why the very first approach is how we are going to put a price and how we are going to penalize those activities that are causing the problem. And the other side is the actual cost of restoration. It's true, it's absolutely true that there are several ecosystems that unfortunately we are not going to be able to restore as they were in the past. And we'll take a lot of, a lot of time and think about all these thousands of hectares in the Amazon that have been chopped and we are not going to see them in another probably 100 years. And, and of course, it is very important to start talking about the cost of that in the humanity, but it's very important to start putting those elements in terms of how we are going to transform the investments that are causing that product and how we are going to start sanctioning. We cannot keep uh, saying that the emission of greenhouse gases uh, 
doesn't have to cost. So we have to start putting a price in those activities that are actually causing the problem. And we have to start value the spiritually more, the, all the, 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 the benefits that the, the existence of, of that all of these ecosystems are providing for us to be alive. And I think that is very difficult to put in, 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 in a cost terms, but if we don't value that, doesn't matter if we change the financial system. We're never going to change the trajectory that we are at the moment. So I will I will leave it there for now. And I would like to come back to with other elements, such, for instance, the carbon markets and all these approaches that obviously are, are quite tricky, that we have to be very careful with these elements. But I hope uh, this uh, helps to continue the conversation. Simon, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sandra. I think that was a really, really good exposition of the need to update our system of system of value to ascribe proper value beyond what we currently do and this is something that actually people have been talking about for a long time there was a famous 1968 speech by Robert Kennedy when he talked about this and it's such a good speech I'm just going to briefly quote from it because I think it's um he put it very well he talks about the gross national product it counts air pollution and cigarette advertising. It counts the destruction of the redwood and the loss of our natural wonder in chaotic sprawl. It counts napalm and counts nuclear warheads and armored cars for the police to fight the riots in our cities. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education or the joy of their play, does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages. It measures everything, I'm, I'm abbreviating it, it measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. It's, it's a beautiful speech by Robert Kennedy in 1968. And since then, we certainly haven't fixed that problem. And many would argue that it's actually got worse. So the fact that we're here talking about it now in 2021 um, is on one level very dispiriting. And the question is whether something's different about this time around um, that will that will mean that we actually fix it this time. Um, Jojo, one of the things that you want to address here is well, taking a, a legal angle to this and saying that if you were to actually really enshrine the principle of, of criminal liability for destruction of natural ecosystems, then this could be a very powerful tool in addressing these problems. Could you tell us a bit about that, uh, the reasons why you think that's important and the approach that you're taking to it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, and, and this speaks to what Sandra was saying about sanctioning. Obviously, you know, there are financial sanctions. And what what uh, what we're aiming at, obviously, are particular legal sanctions. Because um, and right now, the you know our sort of economic system kind of obliges corporate officers to maximize shareholder return. That's actually, you know, in, in many ways, their legal obligation. Um, but they do have to do it within a criminal law framework. I mean, obviously, they ideally, they're also adhering to environmental regulation. But what we, uh, you know, what we know from experience is that if you change environmental regulation, what you tend to change is corporate budgeting. Um, what we actually need to change is behavior. Um, and criminal law uh, creates that possibility. Um, so for, you know, for example, you know, you're not going to go to a government and, and say, well, can I have a permit to kill 500 people for my new infrastructure project? I mean, it's just not going to even cross your mind. You know, it, it's a complete taboo as well as being, you know, um, criminally un illegal. Um, but we don't have that same sort of healthy recoil from damaging nature. On the contrary, we actually give out licenses for um, practices which at their worst are, are systematically destroying our ecosystems. So, you know, there's a, there's a way in which, you know, creating that parameter and creating the individual criminal responsibility actually has the potential to change behavior um, and, and and not just to do so once the law's in place, but actually also in anticipation of that, because effectively, you know, when corporate actors can see that coming, then, the, you know, they start to think about, well, what do I need to do in order to not, you know, fall foul of that, of that new rule? Um, I, I also think that actually the COP, the COP talks recently just show, um, again, I suppose, you know, how so many people are sort of trying to play the same game better. And I think, again, that speaks a little bit to what Sandra was saying. Um, whereas what we really need is for them to be playing it differently. And unless you change one of the key rules, you know, that's going to be hard. It's hard to see how that's going to manifest. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. It's something that I also felt um, I was at COP for the, for the duration. I, I noticed a big difference, actually, between the people who were in their 20s and younger and everybody else. 
because the people in their 20s and younger, and many of them were activists with Fridays for Future or similar groups, they were really talking about changing the system, not breaking down the system. They're not, they're not anarchists, whatever some people might tell you. They're talking about improving the system and updating the system. And I noticed that people who were um, in business, many of the people also in, in, in government delegations, I think, were talking more about doing better within the existing system. So just like you were saying, you know, doing, um, playing the same game better instead of playing a different game or playing the game completely differently, which I think um, a lot of people are now um, getting more and more conscious of this. Um, and I think the, the issue of criminal liability is really interesting because I think certainly if you're a, a corporate officer uh, on a listed company in the US or Europe, you're going to be very, very conscious of criminal liability. One thing that I noticed when I was traveling in the Amazon last year for, for the book project I was working on was that people are not concerned about criminal liability in these small communities in the Amazon. So when I was, I was in a place called Boca do Acre, which is in uh, Amazonas state, and I, I was traveling with an amazing uh, research partner called Marco. And we were driving one day and we saw a plume of smoke coming from the rainforest. So we, we drove towards it and started walking into the forest. And then we found Ezio and Ezio was there burning the rainforest. And we spoke to him and, and we explained what we were doing, that we were researching and I was writing a book. And, and he said, fine, he was very happy to talk to us. I said, can I take a photo of you? He said, yeah, that's absolutely fine. I said, can I use your name in my book? That's fine. I said, can we make a video with you? He said, that's absolutely fine. Because he said, look, they're not enforcing the law here. You know, people understand that I'm just a man trying to make a living. He was, he, he was, a, he was not a, a rich guy. And this was the best um, hope he felt he had of, um, of making an income. So, so that's something that you've looked at a lot, Anna, obviously, um, Brazil, looking at how the, the, the tension that exists in Brazil between protecting the Amazon and what people perceive as their opportunities to, to make a living. You know, Ezio clearly felt, he said, look, it's easy for you from your rich country. You have all these options to make a living. For me, I can either stay poor or I can burn some forest and raise cattle. Those are my yeah. options. I chose the second option. So yeah. how, do we, how do we address this system so that people like Ezio are going to be able to earn a living, a better living, um, but are not going to go out and destroy the rainforest? Mm. Um, just, um, well, thank you for inviting me here. I mean, I've been to Boca do Acre and it takes like four hours to go from like Cubanco. So it's really in the middle of nowhere of the, of the Brazilian Amazon. Um, so I think, I mean, I've been working, I mean, I now work at Chatham House, but I've you know, before I joined Chatham House, I've been working with um, land use change, deforestation, conservation, all this dynamic for, for, for many, many years. And it is, you know, Sandra touched on this, like, you know, there is the opportunity cost of land, right? And then also how do you sort of balance the public good and the private good? Because like Amazon provides public good to the entire planet, but on the really, really individual level, it is about like, what do you do? Do you, do you provide food for your family or do you, or, um, you keep the standing forest, but actually there's no income coming out of it. And I do think that obviously there's a very um, specific political context in Brazil right now, which you know, there were a series of uh, environmental regulations that were put in place um, since 2004 that sort of created, that has shifted back then a bit of that sense of sense of impunity that if you do something with the forest, you know, something's going to happen to you and then you're going to be arrested or, but I think over the last couple of years, I think that narrative and perception has shifted. And so it is that sort of former sense of impunity sort of re came back again, which I think is a big loss for, I think, um, what Brazil is trying to do, whether it's to achieve its decarbonization strategy or to, you know, keep uh, planning forests. But I do think that there is a sort of a, a mismatch between, not mismatch, I think this, in order to have any kind of long-term sustained solution, we need to be able to think of different time scopes, right? I think a lot of the policy that were put in place, and I was part of it when I was working there, it was around command and control, is around sort of negative sort of supply, not negative, sorry, supply chain management. How do you eliminate? Um, so it's around the sticks, enforcement policies that are around the sticks, instead of like thinking about like how do you then enable the transition, right? How how can Brazil, as a production, uh, you know, that has an aspiration to be uh, um, a breadbasket of the world? but also sort of contributes to socioeconomic growth, um, 
can transition out of a deforestation-based production model, just how the world is transitioning out of fossil fuel-based energy system, how do we transition out of this sort of extensive productive uh, model, which I think that's one of the biggest questions. And I think whatever solution um, we try to achieve, you need to be able to um, be able to address, you know, 30 million, almost 30 million people who live in the Amazon, and then provide the long-term socioeconomic solutions um, to these people with all the aspirations and the needs that they have. And I think this is where, as you know, me, part of the civil society in the past, like this is where we failed. We push for the best environmental regulations um, in terms of land, you know, um, the, 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 uh, the different kind of land management systems. But actually, if you don't have the, the carrot, the transition solution linked to it, then it's really not sustainable in the long term because then you'll always rely on the sharp end of the stick instead of like, okay, what is in me? What, what is it for me for you to be able to transition to that? So I think that's where the biggest challenge that we will all face. And then Sandra talked about it, right? It is not from a cost perspective. It is from the transition and positive framing. But I think we're still struggling. I do think that Brazil has some really interesting examples on the ground. I'm not sure how much you've seen through your journey. So there are really interesting stuff happening in Brazil, which is, I think, the Amazon is sort of this frontier of conservation and development. And there's so many really interesting things could be coming out of that. So the question is really, how do you scale up the positives while minimizing the negatives? Yeah, and that was obviously something that a lot of people focused on when we had the big anti-deforestation pledge at COP26. And of course, one of the signatories was Brazil. And meanwhile, of course, the Bolsonaro government has been slashing the budget for anti-deforestation enforcement. You know, I, I met um, uh, a team from IBAMA, which is the, the sort of environmental enforcement agency on the ground, had a very frank conversation with the leader. And, and they're all that they're, they're heavily armed, at least they have a heavily armed escort with big machine guns. And because they're, it's very, very dangerous out there. There's a lot of violence in the Amazon, as Anna certainly knows. Um, and, and he was saying, yeah, this is terrible. My team used to be, I forget the exact numbers, but his team used to be far bigger than it is now. Yeah. They're, they're so um, so thinly staffed. So if that's happening at the same time Brazil is signing up to these ambitious long-term pledges, then that's exactly the sort of thing that makes people say, well, how much are these pledges actually worth? Yeah. And are we going down a dangerous road to attach too much importance to the deforestation pledge, the methane pledge, and all sorts of other long-term pledges that, that happen? Um, David, I'd like to come to you and talk about coral. Um, in particular. Um, another person I met, um, I saw him again at COP26 and I met him during my travels also was Mohammed Nasheed, the former president of the Maldives, who of course became a sort of global, a globally known personality in the 2009 or before the 2009, at the 2009 Copenhagen COP, um, because he was talking about the fact, and it is a fact, that on current trends, the Maldives will no longer exist in its current form. And that's a scientific fact. The highest point of the Maldives is two meters above sea level. Most of it is more like one meter above sea level. And one meter of sea level is something, sea level rise is something that will happen unless we take very serious action um, on, on climate change. And what I um, heard from uh, in particular, what I heard about from Mohammed Nasheed in particular was, was about the coral. So there are four countries in the world, including the Maldives, which are entirely comprised of coral sand. Um, they're, they're formed by coral sand. And the thing is that sea level has risen and fallen over thousands of years with ice ages. And as the sea level rose, the coral simply rose. It grew upwards as the sea level rose. The trouble is now that the, sea, the coral is dying um, extremely rapidly. If you look at all the ecosystems of the world, I think coral is really the most vulnerable. It's so sensitive to temperature change. Um, and they simply, the corals of the world have not evolved to cope with the rapidity of temperature increase that we are now inflicting upon the coral of the world. According to the IPCC, with two degrees of, um, of temperature rise, which obviously, as you know, we are very much on track for more than that, as 99% of the world's coral is gone. Um, so Mohammed Nasheed is talking about this a lot. He's saying that perhaps the hope, best hope for the Maldives is things like genetically modified coral, um, developing new strains of coral that can tolerate um, such heat increases. 
Um, David, do you think that's the sort of thing that, that could be promising? Do you think there is any hope for the world's coral? Um, do you think the answer could lie with technological solutions? And if that's the case, it's going to take a, a, a really large scale effort, which will be very expensive. So yeah. is it possible to raise the huge amounts of money that could be needed to ensure that 100 years from now, there is still any coral in the world? Well, so Simon, thanks. If, well, if you put it that way, then categorically, no. Technical solutions are not the solution for coral reefs. Absolutely not. Um, because of all the things you've mentioned, I mean, you've taken away my dinner party lines of, you know, 99% of corals gone with two degrees warming. And there, there will be a meter or more of sea level rise, no matter what we do with climate change in the long term. You know, the, the, the challenge is that these long time lags are built into the planetary system. And what we have been doing in the last 30 or 40 or 50 years has really set the tone for what's going to unfold in the next 50 to 100 years, even if we achieve the Paris Agreement. So motivating for the kind of action that we need to have the best possible outcome is, is of course, a huge challenge. And people, you know, politicians and countries and business owners, families, you always kick those big problems down the line if you can, because you have to deal with the problems of today. And so that's that's a very real challenge. But I think a big concern with coral reefs, I mean, I, I live in Kenya, I'm based in Africa, and I look at coral reefs in, in developing country settings. And you were just talking about, um, you know, your the, the, the man you found in the Amazon cutting down the forest because he's trying to earn money to send his kids to school and feed his family. So we have exactly the same syndrome happening here with, with uh, fishes and coral reefs you know, taking out more and more, even while temperatures are rising, corals are dying because of, of rising temperatures. So one of my biggest concerns is that particularly, you know, this is a global south and north issue as well, is that the more business as usual, more of the same, not transitioning to a new state means that the northern funding bodies will focus on technological options, which basically puts money into, into the pockets of researchers and technologists who develop solutions, as opposed to putting them into the countries where people are starving and really having a, a hard time to, to raise their families and react to the sort of conditions they have to adapt to now. So we do need research on these technical solutions. There's great work happening on trying to breed super corals and increase their resistance to, to temperatures. But we will lose so much diversity in the process anyway, that even if we do have those corals in 50 to 60 years time, when temperature is one and a half or one degree warmer than it is today, which will be more than two degrees of, you know, in terms of Paris warming, there will only be 50 to 60 species of corals perhaps that can survive and they won't grow the same sorts of reefs that we, that we have been used to. So the technical solution is not a comprehensive solution. We really need to understand that on the one hand, things are shifting beyond what uh, has happened in human history and the, and the coral reefs of 50 years from now will be completely different from the coral reefs of today. If we do the best things, if we do the worst things, there won't be coral reefs. There'll be algal and rocky reefs. But we still have to work hard to keep those systems healthy so that, you know, the, the people living at, at that time will be able to fish and go swimming and, and raise their families and tourism will work and so on. So there will be jobs and economies in the coastal zone. So it's a, it's a huge challenge. And I think trying to bring it into the, you know, the, the things that, that the other panelists have raised in terms of what, so what are the value of these systems? You know, how, how do we put a price on the investment that we need to make now to have a good outcome in 40 or 50 years? I don't think there's a solution to that. I don't think the financial markets have the solution to that. But I do think that in the, with the computational ability we have now, we can make... I think David's connection has just given up, but I think he actually mentioned a, a really great point, which allows us to segue quite nicely to Oliver here about do the financial markets have the answer to you know, this specific point that he was talking about and, uh, and many other questions, how far the financial markets can provide the answer. Um, Oliver, we, we were talking earlier about the extent to which real positive change can be achieved within the existing framework, within the existing systems, within the existing rules, or how far we actually need to really change the rules 
in order to incentivize different sorts of investment, different sorts of economic behavior. What's your take on that? I mean, how much better do you think we can do um, as, as a global economy? How much better do you think businesses and investors can do as long as the current rules and financial incentives remain what they are? Or how far do you think we actually need to look at things like putting a really serious international carbon pricing system in place, changing the, the tax system and the regulations um, in order to really incentivize the sort of change that's, that's needed. What's your take on that? Yeah, thanks, Simon. I mean, listen, just echoing what all the panelists have said, I mean, I, I think a key thing to consider here is timelines, right? Um, and the reality is, is that we've, we've got to be careful that we don't talk about a silver bullet solution. You know, not, not one of us is a winner here in this kind of pick one solution and we go with it. it it's really, we've got to view this as we've got a quiver of arrows. Some of those arrows have got targets that are in the near term. Some of those arrows are long, 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 far away. Um, and they all serve different purposes. But we need to be firing all of those arrows today because they all serve a purpose collectively. And, and you know, building off David's comment, you know, this isn't just a, a, a financial market problem. This is a collective problem that we all have to solve collectively. Um, and I think that what you're seeing and, and certainly that I, I believe that you see this coming off the back of COP26 you know, the kind of corporate um, buy-in to, to this topic now uh, is there. It's, it's a momentum that's not going to be stopped. It's only going to get stronger, right? And with that momentum, people have got to realize they either get on the train or they're going to get left behind. Um, so I, I think that the way we as a firm look at this is that, you know, again, looking at those timelines, we have to be protecting what we can today, right? That's... That, that has to be a focus. Technology and innovation is not the only solution here. We have to be focused on protecting what we can today. But then we do have to, to innovate, right? And, you know, let's take agriculture, for example. We know, you know, depending which research you read, around 80% of biodiversity loss attributable to agriculture, right? But in many cases, you know, it's simply been cheaper to, to deforest than improve yields or productivity. But that's changing, right? And we're seeing capital being allocated to ag tech solutions, et cetera. But again, these things take time, right? And so if we're firing those arrows alongside our protection arrows that are focused today, alongside Jojo's discussion around ecocide and how do we change those legal systems, to Sandra's comments around how do we start looking at regulatory changes that, that force us to take into account valuations. You know, collectively, all of this has to be occurring in parallel. And so the financial system and the financial markets are simply one piece of the puzzle here. Um, and, you know, I'll be honest, from where I'm sitting, never before have they, they been, you know, all pointing in such a similar direction, right? And that's something that, that is really exciting. But we've also got to be with that excitement. I don't want to sound like the bear in the room, but we have to manage expectations because, you know, off back of COP26, lots of discussions about nature-based solutions and they can provide all these climate solutions for us. Yes, they can. But, you know, we don't have a, a deal that's ready tomorrow to gobble up billions of dollars. And unfortunately, some stakeholders have walked away with that perception, right? And so sometimes we can all be a little bit guilty of perhaps simplifying the topic um, when it's really, really complex. You know, if you think of how long it's taken us on climate to get where we are today, biodiversity is, is multiples of the climate complexity. Um, and so we've got to allow ourselves time and the space to accept that that's going to take some time. Uh, and then for me, the big thing is how, from a biodiversity perspective, do we leverage the learnings from climate, right? Um, you know, that community has paid a whole lot of school fees that we need to be able to leverage off and, and ultimately use it to catapult biodiversity to being an equal discussion with climate. Uh, and as IPBES and IPCC pointed out, they are two sides of the same coin. Um, and that's how we need to start talking about it. And for me, that's the same with it's a collective solution that we have to come up with, not just a financial market solution. And then I think that, you know, this point about disruption is really, really important. 
you know, some people, uh, and you kind of use that term, anarchist, Simon. I mean, some people want revolutionary system change today. Um, some people want no system change, right? The reality is, is that we're going to have to see some degree of disruption occur over time. Um, and I think that the financial markets have got a role to play in allowing those kind of disruptions to occur. Um, and I think as we start valuing nature better, we'll see more and more of a role for financial markets to play in that regard. You know, and just off Sandra's valuation comments, I mean, we don't seem to have too many challenges in, you know, the fact that some of the most valuable companies in the world are not necessarily profitable and do not pay dividends today, right? We are valuing them based on some future projection of how many electric motor vehicles they might sell. We seem very comfortable as a, as a society in putting a value on that. If we can do that, we should be able to put a value on, on large pieces of nature as well. Similarly, how we value software depreciation. I mean, come on, that's not an exact science, right? That, IFRS is making some, some rules and we go with the rules. Uh, and I think we've got to be careful we don't get caught up in waiting for perfection and letting that perfection become the enemy of progress, which we need today. Can I yeah, come in? Yeah, please, please go yeah, ahead. Yeah, I just want to come in very quickly on, on Oliver's point about nature-based solution. Sorry, Jojo, I'll, I'll head over to you. <laughs> um, I absolutely agree that, you know, I think the, the in a way it's like managing people's expectations in terms of what nature can deliver. Um, and then also just like Sandra's point about sort of how do you value the values, right? It is like, how do you enlarge an understanding of financial value that incorporate all the different values that society cares about, whether it's environmental or social? And I mean, whether it is within the, the, the current financial system as imperfect as it is, but actually this is how mainstream investors understand so that, that you can then have a proper, not proper, but like this is how you're going to pass you're going to make the case for your investment committee, right? Because this is where you can attract large scale money while at the same time, like working on sort of more cutting edge stuff where people have more appetite for the more innovative thing. But the question is really, how do you manage these sort of, the, 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 the two different kind of a, a transition and disruption process? One, which is more, more turbulent and more disruptive, but also like shaking the system while the other one's working within. And I, I agree just to underscore that we can't wait for the enemy of the perfect to be the enemy of the good, <laughs> right? We only have 10 years. And, but then there's like, let's deploy as many levers as possible. But I do think that unpacking the whole conversation about nature, enlarging the, 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 the definition of value, the financial interpretation of value into values, and then what are the different rules, whether it's contract interpretation or accounting rules around it, it's something that it's, it's worth expanding because that actually changes the fundamental debate. Thanks so much, Anna. We're getting a lot of uh, audience questions coming in, which is great. We're going to try and get, get to as many of them as we can. Um, David, what I'd like to throw to you, because you're, you're in Africa right now, um, and it's from audience member Angela Kelly, who said, was so I'm not actually familiar with the comment that she's referring to here, um, but perhaps others will be. Was Prince William wrong to appear to blame the human population of Africa in the degradation of, of wildlife on the continent? David, I, I, perhaps you're familiar with the exact comment that she's referring to there? Uh, I, I think I've, well, I've heard things like it, so I can, I can, I can certainly address it. So there are two, well, there's a lot of big issues here, but I'll only touch on two. And one is about uh, human impact on the planet. So one, uh, so population, number of people is an issue, of course. You know, I'm an ecologist, so you deal with carrying capacity of any ecologic, any system at all. So when you have too many people, you do stress uh, local environments and global environments too. But what is a, a bigger growth factor is wealth and energy use and impact from economic activity. And what has damaged the planet so far, and climate change is precisely the indicator of that, is energy consumption and emissions. And that comes from accumulated wealth. And most of those emissions that, that you know, when climate change came onto the radar came from the developed world. And then you know, China has grown through its population development to become the, the biggest emitter. So it's not just the number of people and locally, it, it's the global consumption patterns are the big problem. So in that sense, yes, uh, is definitely, uh, you know, 
uh, wrong to, to just appear to blame uh, local populations for degradation of wildlife because Africa's natural resources really get sucked in by the West and by China um, to feed their economies. And that's what drives the impacts. It's the same in the Amazon with deforestation. All of that happens to feed an export economy. So that's where the transition and the, and the transformation needs to come. Thanks so much, David. Really, really interesting response. Um, come back to you, Sandra, because I know, I know you had a lot more to say uh, further to, to what you said earlier. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of questions, actually, that I'll mention here. And, and please do, everyone, keep the questions coming in. We will try to uh, answer as many of them as we can. Um, so the question from Jeremy Grant, um, which is, given the scale and impact of agriculture and the food industry, is there yet a workable way to think about how to value biodiversity that starts with a link between land value and livestock and, and, and crops and so on? So when we look at the valuation of natural capital, starting with, I think, looking at agriculture is what he's referring to there. Could that be a, a really important starting point there? Um, and then a sort of related question, what we need um, to establish market standards for the price of nature and other metrics in the financial sector. But I think actually thinking about it, the first question is big enough. <laughs> so perhaps we should, we'll, we'll start with that for you, for you Sandra. Um, what do you think? Do you think the, the agriculture sector can be a really helpful place to start when it comes to putting a price on, on nature if we start by looking at uh, the agriculture sector? Yeah, apparently, let me let me answer that question uh, with within the, the the other uh, comment that I wanted to to make, and and I think one of the key elements that we got with the Paris Agreement, which is this this big agreement that we signed in two thousand and fifteen, is in the in the Article Two One C of the Paris Agreement, which is the heart of the Paris Agreement, says that eventually the financial flows should be consistent with the development, uh, with the low greenhouse gases and, and climate resilient development, which means that doesn't matter if our public or private financial flows, eventually the financial system has to, uh, has to be consistent. And why is this important for the re not only the agriculture sector, but the energy sector, the, all the sectors is, is, it's clear that we have to stop thinking in climate change or biodiversity from a sectorial perspective. Like, ah, this is environment and let's protect the environment because this is a matter of environment. We have to cut that idea because at the end of the day, the destruction of the biodiversity, the climate change is affecting all different sectors, including agriculture. Every, every single sector is being affected. And I think this is the very first time that we recognize that climate change is a cross-cutting issue and the loss of the biodiversity will affect the rest of the sectors in, in different levels, in different uh, moments. But for sure, every, every part of the, every sector is connected. And that's why we have to start thinking in mainstreaming climate change and mainstreaming biodiversity in every single policy that we develop across not only local governments, national governments, so we have to start, I completely agree with this, with Oliver's perspective about every single actor has a role to play because it's not only the development of the policy, it's the regulation, but also it's the budget. At the end of the day, developing countries and developed countries have to include budgets to invest in this transformation of the sectors. If we do not invest in this transformation in the agriculture sector or the energy sector or whatever sector, at the end of the day, we are like just in the exact same a, a pathway and this is precisely what we have to change. And, and I think this is, when we talk about the financial sector, for me, it has been really interesting after 16 years working on climate finance. I think that every single person has the financial sector in this idea that, okay, is the villain, but we have to think that the financial sector is also very vulnerable. If the financial sector do not mainstream this, do not consider all these in their planning processes, they will lose. They will lose a lot of money. They will lose all their investment. They will lose, and that will have a major effect in the in the economy as a, 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 in, in completely. No, so I think that's why we have to start thinking in a systemic approach instead of the sectorial approach. We have to start thinking in the systemic approach, and every single dollar that you will invest today will impact in in another sector in another in another moment. And, and, and finally, I think in this part of the values, I would like to call you and to, to invite you to listen more the voices, that's my son, <laughs> the, the voices of the, of the indigenous communities and all these voices that have been saying that this is a matter of understanding. 
it's not that the, the indigenous communities don't, don't value money, no? They value the, the Amazon, they, they love where they live. I, I had the opportunity to be in the Amazon in, in Ecuador, and it's fascinating how they love, they, they feel the sense of belonging, but that doesn't mean that they don't need money to, to do what they have to do, you know? So it's how can we put a, this balance between the value and the cost without thinking, ah, well, because they value this, that's not giving them money, no? because they, they already have a, their, their little piece of, of land. So I, I think it's, it starts putting in balance all these perspectives. And I think the, the, sec the financial sector is one of these sectors that he has to mainstream, has to understand these dynamics if we want to be successful in that side. Some really important points there. Uh, Jojo, I think you had something to add there. Yeah, no, I was thinking, I'm really, really relating to what uh, Sandra is saying and thinking about one of the things that uh, that is an issue here about the mindset, about, you know, the, the, the sort of way that we think of ourselves as separate to nature and the way that we think treat nature as a resource and as a thing, if you like, also influences how we think nature should be priced. And we tend to, you know, it's like, what is the price of a forest or what is the price of an elephant? And actually, when you look at it, it's, it's not, you know, the real value doesn't come from the individual items or the individual creatures it comes from the whole the system the processes so you know effectively uh, i mean there's an amazing chap called uh, ralph chammy who's um 23 years in the imf and has just been making an analysis of what ecosystem you know what services are provided by certain keystone species and effectively you know showing that these species are wildly more valuable alive than dead you know there's there's this 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 sense that that, that somehow the you know what we try to value is 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 sort of a bit off the mark you know we actually need to be looking at and and and, the, and, and this sort of relates back to what anna was saying about in a sense what i understood her to be saying was talking about sort of strategic interventions sort of with it that can have you know broader effects across the system um and i mean we consider the you know ecocide law to be one such you know you add a crime to a list of crimes that's already there but what you're doing is you're saying well if ecocide is equivalent to genocide then clearly we should be valuing you know we're saying it's just as bad and wrong to destroy nature and that has a kind of cultural or moral imagination shift that goes with it but similarly i think that that, that kind of shift in the financial sector from the you know the economy effectively being based on destructive activity whereas if the value was in the processes and the you know what's actually keeping us all alive then potentially you start shifting that in the opposite direction from within, you know, you start sort of saying, well, actually, instead of those transactions automatically being destructive, let's have those transactions be protective because that's actually where the value lies. Really good point there. There's another question. We've got, we've got lots of audience questions to get to get through. And um, there's one from Siobhan Cleary. Um, I think this might be one for you, Anna. Um, and, and this is a really interesting question it's to do with how far we can see environmental issues in isolation from the human communities that are part of the story. So Siobhan's question here is um, the mainstream framing of climate, at least if one refers to the TCFD as the benchmark, treats it as an environmental problem from which people are noticeably absent. How do we avoid making the same mistake with nature? So I suppose the idea of just seeing these things as abstract, scientific, you know, forces of physics, um, and not thinking about the the human communities and individual humans that, that uh, are part of this, and you have to also take into account anthropology and psychology and also in sociology and these things, as well as simply, um, you know, the, the, the more the more. Um, uh, basic sciences, the more sort of pure science sciences, you have to think about about those things also. So what's your take on that? And do you think it's true that many people are failing to take properly into account the, the human side of the story? Um, so hi, Siobhan. <laughs> I actually know Siobhan. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> um, so I think, so how, how can I come about it uh, without sort of over-criticizing? But I do think that there is a bit of, for the lack of a better word, okay, so don't feel completely sort of offended. And then I think there was a bit of self-criticism on, on my side as well. So when I started working in, in Amazon, I used to really live in Sao Paulo. I had this like magical, mystical imagination of what 
you know, your Amazon rainforest should be. And then when eventually I spent like three months like backpacking around it, I realized that Amazon is actually made of human beings living there, you know, 30 million people like interacting with the forest. And, you know, there is research that says that actually the concept of pristine and intact forest actually is quite, we should be able to challenge that because we, we have this human interaction. It's just the level of intensity of interaction that will take natural habitats beyond its carrying capacity. And so I do think that what, in, in a way, and I say it as someone who is sort of still an environmental activist, but working in a research organization, which is like, we need to evolve how we think about environment and how we think about climate change, which is this whole obsession about just carbon, while actually it is about fair transition, because you I mean, I can't imagine a world that actually is climate safe, but actually it's not fair because we're just gonna repeat the same pattern. Right. And I, I do think that it is important to sometimes have single issues because it's so urgent. But at the same time, the, the, the risk of not being able to capture, uh, encapsulate the whole, you know, human anthropological elements, behavior, the, the, the people's needs and wants in it, we won't have the long term solution. And then I think this is what sort of what we try to address it through the report, but also through this thinking that climate change transition is about a sociological and political transition that we all have to go through as humanity. And it is about imagining what kind of future that we want to live in. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. That, that, that sort of real vision of targeting a society that you think would, would really work and figuring out how to get there, um, I think is what perhaps some of the, the more ambitious um, people are doing on the um, uh, in the climate action story, and the, you know, the the question is, you know, whether or not those things are actually possible. Um, but I think certainly aiming for something that would work is is a good place to start, rather than incremental improvements to to what we currently have. I think many people would would argue that. Um, Oliver, the question coming back to the financial angle. Um, a lot of people are talking about carbon pricing. It's come up several times in our discussion. Um, you know, as you've correctly said, and I think others have said on the panel also, that there are no silver bullets. Um, but in terms of the bullets that we do have available, carbon pricing would potentially be a very powerful one. Um, and I, I wonder what you would anticipate there, and especially, you know, th th this is a panel fundamentally uh, talking about biodiversity. Um, so carbon price would, of course, have a big impact on carbon emissions, but it could also have a big impact on, for example, deforestation, because a properly enforced carbon price uh, would put a serious price on deforestation. Um, so just looking in particular at the biodiversity question, do you think carbon pricing could have a big impact there? And what would you expect to see? Uh, absolutely. I mean, listen, I think I think as as a couple of the panelists have said already, any kind of regulatory introduction uh, is what meaningfully moves the dial for the whole market. Right. It doesn't become a question of the leaders and the laggards. And I'm afraid that that is where we're at in, in many circumstances. There's leaders and laggards and we hope that the laggards uh, catch up and we've got to be careful that they don't get left behind. Um, I think, so make no doubt, yes, it, it could be a, a key driver in addressing deforestation, addressing a number of drivers of biodiversity loss. However, I think we've also got to be, and I'll, I'll go back to this nature-based solutions uh, side to this, this uh, carbon pricing element, is that not all carbon credits are equal. Um, and, you know, this actually becomes, a, again, a question of valuing biodiversity, right? Because for me personally, I, you know, we've got to be careful that we don't start pursuing the lowest cost carbon credits because we are unable to value nature that's being protected or generated uh, in other nature-based solutions. So I think that we, we've got to be very careful not to promote just a pure bottom line approach uh, which is a fear I have. Uh, and the flip side to that, Simon, is that when we look at nature-based solutions, you know, we talk about local communities a lot. Um, we've got to be careful that the, the tail doesn't wag the dog here and that we've got to ensure that there is equitable distribution of the monetization that occurs through this process, 
right? And when we talk about pure just carbon markets and without any consideration for that that un or that piece of nature that we can't value, we are really incentivizing intermediaries to enter that market um, who are not necessarily pursuing the best interests of the overall system. And again, we come back to that point of a system. This isn't just about solving for carbon. So yes, I would love to see more advancements in, in carbon pricing markets, but they have to take into consideration the whole, the whole system and not just carbon. Yeah, I mean, a really important, um, you know, extreme case study would be if you were just counting carbon, then you could destroy an incredibly diverse ecosystem and plant a monoculture plantation, which happened to absorb a lot of carbon. And um, this is what's happening, right, is, is this obsession with planting trees. And don't get me wrong, trees are important, but there's got to be the right trees, right? And it can't all be the same trees. Uh, the number of times you see projects presented as we're going to plant eucalyptus trees where they're an invasive species. But guess what? We're planting trees, so it's good for, for climate. Gotta be, we've got to be looking at that holistic system. Yeah, and I think um, I, I think you're right that this is happening. Um, and that you know we've all seen examples of carbon offset schemes that are effectively monoculture and, and are not good for biodiversity. Um, so we have time for one more um, audience question, um, which is a really, it's a really important and tough one. And I'll throw it to you, Sandra. We've just got a couple of minutes left. Um, so I'm giving you the impossible task of answering a very complex question in two minutes, but do your best. Um, and, and, the, and the question is, does the increasing polarization in society make it impossible to come to a consensus on how to move forward on preserving biodiversity? Because, you know, we have a, a perfect storm in the sense that we're facing this extraordinary challenge of dealing with the climate crisis, dealing with the biodiversity crisis at a time when we have this extraordinary political crisis in countries like the UK and the US of extraordinarily high levels of political and social polarization. So how far does that damage your hope of seeing real action? Totally. And, and well, there are many, many movements that said that, said that climate justice is social justice, social justice is climate justice, and we cannot solve everything if we do not deal with the, the inequality that we are living around the world, not only between rich and poor people, but also women, men. And, and I think this is critical. And I would say that one of the key elements that we have to pursue in the next um, days, months, and years is precisely to, to really um, continue with this education kind of uh, thing uh, to make to create more awareness about uh, what we were saying about value, because I think that it's true that in certain societies that have certain access to more money uh, tend to, um, well, I, I don't want to generalize because in this point, we, we think that societies are very, very different all around the world. But, but I think it's very important to start uh, revalue what is really uh, valuable. And I think this is uh, where we have to start thinking about life as, as the preservation of our species and the preservation of, of what we uh, really want for our kids and, and, and our gen future generations. And I think this has to be mainstream as well in the education system, because if we do not consider these values in our education system, it's going to be very difficult to really tell people that they don't have to be aspirational about having a big, a big SUV uh, to move around with their families. And I think this is aspirational, you know? So I, how can we change the dream? How can we change the, the sense of happiness? How can we embrace that happiness is at the end of the day being alive and enjoy the, being with nature and, and breathe a nice uh, clean air? So if we start value that in our lives, we will be like more able to like, like let's say break those bridges between those that have a lot of money and those that have less and we are going to be able to be to 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 share let's say uh, the the well-being and the well in 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 the welfare about around the, the the world so i think that it's also a matter of education and bring this value to our daily lives so thank you so much sandra that's a really powerful note on, on which to finish and and thank you to all our panelists um, we are now out of time. I'm just going to hand it back over to Penny to see us out. Over to you, Penny. I'm really disappointed we're out of time. I'm so sorry, but you're right. That was a, a very inspirational and, and thoughtful way to finish. So, so thank you. I, I've 
thought I was going to, uh, but I have learned a huge amount listening to, to some of the world's greatest experts on this topic. So thank you all so much. Um, so many things that you, you said uh, have rung true, but one was actually very surprising that, that it's taken until now for someone to come up with a report that says that species are wildly more valuable alive than dead. Isn't it terrible that we actually have to, someone had to research that to discover that is absolutely true. Um, um, and it's also very nice to hear um, you say at the end, let's value what is really valuable. Um, thank you. I, I really value your time and I really value your expertise and I've been really, really grateful to listen to it. So Sandra, Jojo, David, Oliver, Anna and, and Simon, thank you so very much for leading us through a complex subject, but actually making it very attainable for people like me who want to learn more. So thank you. I've really loved listening to you and learning from you. So thank you very much. That's it for now. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at UK underscore Aspen. And to stay up to date with our work and future discussions, check out our website at aspenuk.org. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.